This is Telling Mental Health, where we break stigma with story. Each episode, we feature a true and personal mental health-related story, followed by a conversation with the storyteller. We are your hosts. I'm Erica Blumfield. And I'm Scott Randall. And today's story comes from Kelly Spillman. Last November, I found myself in one of the most unlucky situations you can find yourself in. I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer that had spread to my liver. I don't have a family history of colon cancer and I've never known anyone with colon cancer or cancer in their liver. So this was shocking, overwhelming. It was very scary. I really did not have a lot of personal experience with cancer at all. I'm a pretty open person, so I you know, posted on social media, um, hoping to get some information, but people really didn't have a, a recommendation for an oncologist. So I was assigned one at UCLA. Her name was Dr. Kubalanza. And I really had no idea what to expect in the first meeting. Um, she calmly just stated that I would start chemo the very next week. She said I was going to lose my hair, have nerve damage in my hands and feet, and a list of other really bad side effects. But she said there were medications I could take. So if I told her about the side effects, then I could take those medications to hopefully reduce them. But she was very clear that with my liver completely covered in tumors, that there was not a chance for me to be cured, that chemo was going to keep me alive, and that I would be on chemo for life. And so I asked how long that, what what do you mean chemo for life? How long are we talking about? And she said, you know, we're just going to be optimistic, which caused me a lot of anxiety because that's not an answer. Um, So we did this every two weeks. I would go and get chemo. I would tell her what side effects I had, and she would prescribe me medications to reduce the side effects. Dr. Kubalanza put me on the most aggressive chemo, full foxery, and... I actually had an amazing response. Uh, Usually chemo just shrinks tumors, but for me, on my first CT scan, of the 15 tumors, only eight were still um, visible on the CT scan, and my rectal tumor was no longer visible. It had shrunk so much. So Kubalanza even was impressed because she just said this is just so rare to have this kind of positive response so quickly on chemo. So I was, of course, optimistic. Chemo was just going to kill all the cancer. But again, she said, Kelly, you're not going to be cured. Chemo doesn't work this way. Um, This is only going to improve your quality of life. Because I was just so overwhelmed and scared, and I wasn't really getting a lot of answers from her about (laughs) what chemo for life or what stage four cancer is, I made the mistake of going on Google. I do not recommend doing this. I saw the same statistic over and over again when you research stage four colon cancer. 80% of people with stage four colon cancer are dead within two years. And only 5% are alive five years after diagnosis. It is very, very deadly when you get diagnosed at stage four. Um, I also joined six stage four colon cancer groups on Facebook. I just was looking for people in my situation, trying to find more information, and I obsessively read every single post. Um, I was hoping to make like cancer buddies in the infusion room when I would go in for chemo, but I was the only one in the room every time. It is a very 
isolating, lonely, scary experience. But as I continued doing chemo, the tumors just kept shrinking. And Dr. Kubalanza actually changed her tone. She became optimistic that I might actually be eligible for surgery. So the only real cure for cancer is you have to get it surgically removed from your body. Chemo doesn't do that. It just shrinks the tumors. So she set up two meetings with me with a colon surgeon and liver surgeon at UCLA. And I was so excited because like a chance for a real cure. I met individually with each surgeon and they both rejected me saying that I had too many tumors and it was just too risky. Um, And so this was obviously very devastating news. In my Facebook groups, people kept talking about this hero surgeon, that he was the most aggressive liver surgeon in the country and that he saves all these stage four colon cancer people or with with liver tumors. And um, talk about luck. His name is Dr. Fong and he is in Los Angeles at City of Hope. So I go back to Dr. Kubalanza telling her about him and saying, I don't know what to do. It's a different hospital. I don't know how insurance works. Uh, I don't know if I can get surgery at another hospital. So she reached out to my insurance company to request the surgical consult. I know from reading that people fly all over the world to see Dr. Fong, but he only agrees to less than 10% of the people he sees. So I was extremely nervous walking into this meeting with him because I felt like this was my last hope. Dr. Fong agreed to do surgery. Um, even though it took me three months to get the appointment and it was going to take some time to set up. So he is known for giving people with many liver tumors, there's an implant that he puts in the abdomen that's the size of a hockey puck and it delivers a hundred times the chemo directly and only to the liver. So this was the surgery I got approved for. And when I went back to tell Dr. Kubalanza, assuming I would stay at UCLA to get other chemo there, she said, no, if you go get that pump, you're going you're gonna to have to get a new oncologist. And this really hurt my feelings because it seemed like she was throwing me away after we were fighting this fight together. But then Dr. Fong told me, no, you can't stay at UCLA. You're going to have to go here. So on June 8th, I had surgery. Uh, uh, my colon tumor was removed and Dr. Fong implanted the liver pump. And my new oncologist at City of Hope does not think I'll be cured. So I have another oncologist who does not think I'll be cured. But I asked Dr. Fong, have you seen someone in my situation with my number of liver tumors to be cured? And he said many times. So I am wildly optimistic that I will beat this. Uh, When I got home from surgery, I emailed Dr. Kubalanza first, and she said she was thrilled that the surgery went well and to stay in touch, and that meant a lot to me. And now we're joined by the storyteller, Kelly Spillman. Welcome to Telling Mental Health. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're so excited to have you today. Um, Your story, as always, was very... um, vulnerable and honest and informative and just so amazing. And we really appreciate you 
going there and sharing that with us just to start. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, we on this podcast, a lot of times we're talking about mental health from a direct standpoint of people's challenges with it. And so many times life throws a ton of bricks at you and that can create mental health struggles as well. Um, But before even this point, I was wondering just growing up or earlier in life, was there any time that you found uh, mental health issues to kind of be a part of your life? You know, I, I have been pretty um, lucky in that, um, you know, honestly, not really. I mean, maybe a little like anxiety in certain situations or maybe obsessing over things. Uh, but luckily, you know, before this horrific t- tragedy that is uh, is going on, um, you know, I've been pretty lucky that um, so like um, I just like I got a therapist assigned to me uh, during this process. And I was even a little hesitant, um, to do that. But I, one thing that I told myself is anything that's going to be offered to me that could maybe help me during fighting this stage four cancer, I'm going to do it. And, and it was a great experience. So that this has been kind of my first time working with a therapist. I'm in a support group too. So this really is my first time, you know, head on dealing with some mental health issues in all honesty, um, at least a major ones. I've maybe had some minor ones growing up, but, um, yeah, so this is kind of a new area for me, uh, trying to work on mental health during Mm -hmm. this. And what was what was life growing up like? Where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I did kind of grow up in a very tumultuous situation. My mom married many times, so I had many stepdads. A lot of them are not nice. Uh, they were not good guys. So I kind of at 18 got out of Jacksonville. I went to Florida State. And then after I graduated, I moved to Atlanta. Like I just got out of there. Um, so, um, and I feel bad because I kind of have a bad attitude toward Jacksonville and it's nothing about Jacksonville. It was just, I grew up in a very tumultuous home and just wanted to get out of there at age 18. And I did. Mm-hmm. And that's really indicative of who I know you to be. You're like a determined person who says yeah. I'm going to, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. A lot of times um, those tumultuous, um, I, not tumultuous childhood necessarily, but growing up in a tumultuous environment will not seem like it's creating any sort of struggles mentally until later on. And sometimes you look back in the rearview mirror and say, whoa, that was actually a lot. Have you, with that kind of separation, have you um, noticed that, like looked at those times a little differently? Or different yes. And, and I definitely see as an adult where this has a fact, like for instance, I'm dating someone, I have a wonderful boyfriend, but he likes to sometimes give me tips. Like, are you going to wear a hoodie? It's cold outside. And I mean, I can't stand it because I had so many stepdads. Like there's just something in me when someone's telling me to do something that it just seems like a mean stepdad. And I've had to kind of learn he's trying to be helpful. It is cold outside. He's not a stepdad. (laughs) And so, um, also, I didn't get like a lot of like I didn't hear I love you. There was not affection. And um, so that's something I kind of had to learn as an adult as well. And it's been interesting with this experience because my siblings never said 
that. And now that I'm going through this, we do now routinely say this to each other. So it's been kind of a nice change because we never told each other we loved each other, you know, for decades. And and now we do. So that's been nice. But yeah, that you definitely, uh, I definitely see where some of those things maybe have hurt me in my adult life without me even being consciously aware of it, how these things stay with us as adults. We're so mm-hmm. vulnerable at that age that really you are born and the adults in your life, whoever you're given to deal with, are dictating reality to you, basically. And if you grow up in a dysfunctional household, sometimes you just think that's how it is and you're the problem or, you know, for feeling weird, it's on you. And then I think once you can compare that to other life experiences as an adult, um, it kind of, it can be helpful. I don't know. I had some step parents too. I I didn't, I I think they're, they're in a difficult position because, you know, they're not like, they're not the real, I don't know, original parents. So they always feel like an outsider, I think, sometimes stepping into a relationship. And sometimes they do better than others. <laughs> but it's interesting to see, you know. I how- think what's really interesting, though, sometimes, too, is for certain people, like they grow up maybe in a tumultuous thing and their mental health is affected in a way that isn't as dysfunctional maybe it comes from like I don't want to be like that like I feel like mine's a combination of I don't want to be like those people I'm going to do better and also I'm not going to let the bastards get me down right like I'm going to show them yeah so so you mentioned your family so I was going to ask you like who and what is your support system? Has yes, been- I I have been very fortunate. Um, my sister who lives in Atlanta, um, when she actually flew out, and she has three young children, so this was, and she's an emergency room doctor. She's a very busy woman, and she actually flew out for my first two chemo um, sessions, which I really appreciated because it happened so fast and I didn't know what to expect. And the first two rounds were actually quite bad. So it was nice to not only have my sister, but a doctor with me because uh, the side effects were really quite bad the first two rounds. So yeah. And then I have a brother that lives in Jacksonville. So unfortunately, you know, I moved out to LA to be a comedian. So most of my support system is in the East coast on the South. Um, But um, I definitely have friends out here too in LA that have really stepped up to help me. So I've been blown away by how supportive people, you know, have been to me. It's, it's been really remarkable. So I'm very fortunate. Well, and you, and you, you talk about how, you know, maybe your siblings and you didn't, appreciate each other as much in saying I love you to each other and showing that gratitude until you get a cancer diagnosis like this until can you talk about that transition of I don't know if it's realizing that life is a little more precious than sometimes we give it credit for definitely definitely and um uh I I definitely think that's what has happened and I mean I always felt like I was close. We always got along at my brother and sister. They're both very cool, great people. Um, But I think also um, one issue is, you know, when you have a different stepdad, like every three years, I think another thing is that I maybe didn't, and I was so kind of narcissistic and like wanting to do well in LA. And I think it also 
re- I realize how important family is and that maybe I wasn't putting a lot of effort into seeing them and talking to them. So, um, yeah, we definitely, they check in on me much more and, um, I'm, I haven't been able to travel since I was diagnosed next last November, but like, I'm going to go in December to see them because, you know, this is a very difficult situation. I want to definitely make sure I see them in person because I don't know what's going to happen with my situation. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, and and it, it's not always easy to say, cause I'm, I'm not someone who has said that, but, um, but I, I, you know, and making sure to say it because it's important to get that out there to them. I remember my dad started saying it. It seemed randomly like I, I think it was maybe about 10 years ago. So I don't know, as as I became an adult and I think it's partially I think he told me like my dad never told me this. So I'm going to, you know, and I think a lot of times generationally they're trying to do better than the generation before and sometimes succeed. But it was funny how it just sort of he started introducing. I love you. Even if it doesn't right. sound like super genuine, he just wants it to be out there. I want it to be known. <laughs> right. My brother, um, he just had his second child and he's married. And I I was even kind of wondering if maybe his wife was like, tell your sister you love her. I don't know if maybe that he got some encouragement from her as well. Uh, or maybe he did come up with it on his own. But um, yeah, it and it, it kind of shocked me the first time I because he had never said it before. But now now we're saying it a lot. So it's nice. Well, you are so loved. You are so loved in the storytelling community. And it's so amazing to have. um, I'm so happy that you have the family support. So I'm curious, like, what's a typical day like for you now? Is it very different? It is. It's um, and it's it is something I'm kind of even really struggling with. Um, You know, you lose or I've lost a lot of parts of my identity in this process, um, because, you know, the side effects of chemo are, you know, one of the biggest ones is just the fatigue and it's very hard to explain how bad the fatigue is. And so, um, you know, like I was, uh, I'm still a professor, but, uh, like I'm just teaching online right now. And I just loved being in the classroom, but I just, I get too sick. I have so many medical appointments all the time. Um, and so, and I get very tired at night. So it's been, it's been more difficult to do storytelling and stand up, which, you know, was why I moved out here. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I am able to teach online. So I spend some of the day working that way. Um, and I do have a lot of medical appointments. Um, and, um, so, uh, you know, sometimes I can meet friends for lunch. Like I went to a movie yesterday with a friend that was really fun, but, um, it, it can be in all honesty. It's been a little isolating, like, cause I'm, I'm home a lot. And also this happened during the pandemic. So it was just kind of like a double whammy of being at home, being isolated. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to be a little bit better too of, trying to have things to look forward to like Erica, sometimes we meet at echo park lake and walk around and those things are really good for me to have something to look forward to because, you know, my life has become so homebound and I'm sick, you know, uh, one week I'm sick. And then one, then I have a good week. So, um, you know, that's been tough in all honesty, it's been difficult. 
And that's the, the chemo schedule is the one week. Yes. Of, yeah. So, so I go in, um, tomorrow I'll go in and ugh, I'm in a new hospital. So it's a nine hour ordeal, but I'm actually getting chemo for about four hours. And then I have a pack, uh, that I wear a chemo fanny pack and it gives me chemo for 46 more hours. And then, um, I get unhooked. So that's, um, two days later and then 12 days, I come back and do it all again. And so tomorrow will be my 17th chemo that I've done this. So it's every two weeks. Yeah, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And you can, I guess now you look at your calendar in a way that says, okay, good week, yes. tired, sick week, good week and yes. plan around that. Yeah. In fact, someone just asked, I have a friend that's uh, from the East coast. That's going to be in California. And she asked me to meet for lunch and I would meet her even if it was a bad week, but I'm so excited. It's on my good week. So I, I know I'll feel okay. And sometimes the bad week isn't a whole week, but it can be, I just never know what's going to happen. It's usually going to be at least a few days of possible nausea, lots of fatigue, uh, lots of GI issues. So unfortunately, um, uh, that's another thing that kind of is a quality of life issue. You have to be near a bathroom, unfortunately, because uh, you never know when you're going to have kind of an immediate GI issue. So it's another kind of hindrance for doing a lot of things. Um, like Erica, when we went to hike, I that there's a bathroom. I, I can't just go on a hike. Uh, I have to know there's going to be a bathroom there because uh, that could be dangerous for me. <laughs> I may not be, I probably shouldn't say this on this, but there's a spot where I go. <laughs> Wait, like, at Echo Park Lake or on a hike? Oh, no, there are bathrooms at Echo Park yeah. Lake, but on the hike sometimes. Often, <laughs> I, have, I have a 40-something-year-old bladder, so I'm like, <laughs> gotta make a pit stop here. There's times where I've, anyway, I was <laughs> No, it's okay. easier for guys. I feel lucky when I can just, like, stand and they're like, is that guy just really closely looking at that cactus or is he peeing? I can't tell. I'd be scared to pee near a cactus. Well, you don't stand that close to it. I'm just saying, or you just kind of aim yourself towards the mountain, not away from the mountain, because then everybody on the other side of the valley can see you. I'm just imagining those expensive millionaire houses with their binoculars looking at hikers peeing downhill. So I at least save them from that view. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was wondering too, like during this time of your life, what are, what is most just kind of important to you? You know, oh gosh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I'm going to call myself out on this, like, and this is something I really do struggle with. I have just been so focused on trying to beat this cancer. And I don't know if this is like psychologically the wrong thing to do, because I almost feel like my head has been buried in the sand of denial, just like I had just have to beat this. And so I'm, I, I kind of feel like I sadly have been kind of putting things on the back burner and thinking about what is my life? What am I, what is my purpose here? You know? Um, and so I'm, I feel like I'm not doing the best job on that in all honesty. And I don't, I don't know if it is better to just be so optimistic that I'm going to beat this and then I can figure those things out. Or if this is a huge, huge mistake and that, 
you know, that I'm going to find that I've run out of time and I didn't focus on, you know, what is important. But um, so that's something I really struggle with, in all honesty. Yeah, well, I think, though, what you're doing is what's important and what is making you stay positive and helping you beat this is that and that's what's important to you right like right. And your your resilience and your determination and keeping forward and positive so you know that's really significant I think yeah and important so important so yeah i mean optimism that just that word to me ran through the story where when the doctor said that she wasn't optimistic or and you didn't like that answer and no you just no. said um and i think that your your state the way that you think about things does affect your physical health i think a lot of times it's it's strange that we have mental doctors and physical doctors and those two rarely cross right um, but I think the mind is so important in in physical health. And if you approach it with the optimism that it sounds like you have, you get results that surprise doctors. Yes. And that was, you know, and a lot of people have told me this, that they really think my positive outlook is playing a role in this very rare good response I continue to have. Um, trying to fight this. And it, yeah, it just really bothers me. I mean, some people I've, I, 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 as I mentioned in the story, I went, I was obsessive. I joined way too many cancer Facebook groups, but um, you know, some people even advise if your oncologist doesn't believe you're going to get, but you know, you should get a new oncologist night. I didn't do that, but it did make me feel better when the first oncologist came around because she really was clear in the beginning that I am, would absolutely not be cured. And then, you know, that surgery would never be an option. And then she changed her tune when, you know, the chemo response was so good. So, yeah, I do think the positive, my positive thoughts are leading to these good outcomes. Yeah. And that's not available to everyone. Not that everybody, you know, can think their way out of no, cancer, and I, but it's, it's, yeah. it definitely, it doesn't hurt, you know? No, it doesn't. And you, brought up something I do want to talk about that's really important. And I made the mistake of doing this in the beginning because there's always this um, push, like be strong, fight this cancer, you know, and, and I was doing it in the beginning. I had a hashtag badass bitch Kelly, and I would keep score. Like she's seven cancer zero. And all these people on Facebook were getting into it, but it sends this message. If I lose this fight, it's because I didn't fight hard enough. So I have stopped using any type of lingo of like, this is a fight because it isn't, it does send this message. And I even caught myself when I would see people would die and a lot of people die of this. I would like, oh, I wonder if they quit chemo. Like I found myself doing it, which is horrible. So no, you are right. I don't want to imply that if people died, it's because they weren't positive enough. I mean, this I'm learning. I think some of this is sadly just luck. And, and I have been very open that I have in my very unlucky situation, I continue to have some luck. Um, so that's something really important you're bringing up because I, I think people have good intentions, but then it sends this message. If you lose the battle, you didn't fight hard enough. And that's just simply not true. A lot of people fought, 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 and they're not able to beat it, unfortunately. And it, I mean, in thinking of it as a battle versus life, just in right. how do you want to live your life for whatever many years you have, 
we're all eventually losing that battle. You yes. know, if we want to call it a battle and we just want to try to stay alive as long as possible, but you, it's also more about enjoying that time right, um, and doing what you want to do with it. So that, I guess in some sense, it's almost like there's no right path for everybody. It's just, right. we're, we're all going to approach it differently. Yeah. And I've definitely learned that with, um, you know, this process, like you're saying, we, we definitely handle things differently and look at things differently. And, um, and, and again, I'm very open that I may not be doing this right. Because as I said, in the story, if 80% die within two years, I'm at nine months. And, um, you know, so, but again, I just, I really just still think I can beat this. So that's all I'm mainly focusing on. And, and that may be a mistake, you know, maybe there are things I should be doing, um, you know, uh, thinking about if, if I only have 15 months left, you know, but I just am not there right now. No, I, I think, um, I think, I think you're doing great. I love <laughs> Thank <so> you. <laughs> Well, it's like, if you think about the future too much, I think this is universal for a lot of people. This is people with anxiety. This is people um, struggling with a lot of different things is worrying about, am I doing this right? Am I doing what I should be doing with today, with this year, with my life in general? And I think the more that we've, you know, we should think about that sometimes, but you really can't let that consume you. I don't think you you can't. And I I was guilty of that before I even, um, got cancer. I mean, I think I always was forward looking, but I think sometimes I missed out on being present in the present moment by focusing so much on the future. So that's, what's kind of good about this too. Uh, It's also made me like, because the fatigue can be so bad, like sometimes I'll just have like one goal from, you know, for myself is, you know, and, and then I get excited that I'm at that goal. And, and, and a lot of times that goal, you know, like one, two days ago was just to go to the laundromat to do laundry, you know, I mean, things that you in the past were not that big of a deal can be extremely tiring. So, um, but, but it, it, it is good to just kind of focus on that day. And part of me is just, I got to get through this day. And, and that's been kind of good to maintain the present tense and not focus on the future so much. Mm -hmm. I can, I, I think my situation's totally like completely different with a mental health diagnosis, but I think that you just pointed out something so wonderful that I want to just echo for the listeners that you set a goal even if it seems like a small goal and how much that lifts spirit. And I mean, I was so depressed for a large part of my life. I couldn't go to the mailbox, you know, it just became like, Oh, okay. Today I'm going to go to the mailbox. And, and it is, it's a battle. It's a battle. Is that the, I mean, I, I feel like, I don't know. I don't feel like people who don't, for me, Every day I wake up and it feels like a battle, but maybe um, I should think about, I like what you're saying about this terminology, like a fight or beat it. Maybe this puts a pressure on myself or the Right, yeah. right. That if you didn't make it to the mailbox, this idea that you lost the battle, you know, that that, that might cause you even more harm. No, I, I'm with you too. Like I'm, I, I see the term battle and and I view what I'm going. It has absolutely been a battle, but there was, um, I saw a quote and I wish I 
could remember, but there was a woman recently that died of brain cancer and she wrote out and was talking just about this and like, just saying, I didn't lose the, you know, I didn't lose a battle. Um, and kind of what Scott was saying, like, this was life and this is what happens. Um, you know, another thing that I was struggling with that is a mental health issue is, um, because I joined all these Facebook groups and I'm so, I'm still scared about what it'll be like to get sicker because this could, and, and statistically is more likely to happen to me. And I kind of got obsessed with that and those groups, a lot of people are sicker than me and, I found myself worrying about things that hadn't even happened. And so one thing I've been working on is trying not to do that because like, like I started a new chemo and it has terrible side effects. Um, and I was just worrying so much about it and I've had some of them, but I didn't have all of them. So I found myself, I was worrying because uh, some people get all these sores all in their throat. And I was so worried about that but it didn't happen to me. I did get all the sores on my face, which I'm very self-conscious about, but I was worrying about mouth sores that never, that haven't happened. So that was one thing I've, I feel like I've been a little bit more successful of, I'm not, I'm, I can't worry about getting sicker right now. When it happens, then I will worry about it, but I'm not sicker right now. I'm getting, you, you know, the, the tumors are shrinking right now. So I'm just going to focus on that. And if they start to get larger again, then I will worry about that when it happens. So that's been helpful for me too, is to really catch myself when I'm worrying about what ifs that may not even actually happen. I'm curious, you mentioned that um, through this experience, you started seeing a therapist for the first time. Is this something that you guys have talked about? And what, what has that um, yes. been like? She Yes. Um, uh, it, it has been good. It's funny. Like the question that, um, Erica asked me earlier about like purpose and life, like sometimes I feel she'll ask me a lot of things like that and that I'm not deep, but like, I feel like I disappoint her by not being deep enough, but, um, no, that was definitely something we talked about. And, um, and I kind of hinted at this in the story too, because, my first oncologist, it was just like, we're going to do chemo. We're going to remain optimistic. And I just, I guess I wanted more of like, what is this journey going to be like? And so one thing I appreciated with the therapist is, you know, that was also a place that we could talk, you know, where we did talk about like, um, do I have, have I thought about what death will be like or what I'm going to do? Like what my plans are, uh, for that. And, and, um, so, but yeah, we talked a lot about, because I also was getting, in all honesty, I was checking these Facebook groups way too much. And so we talked about too, about maybe only spending a certain amount of like 10 minutes a day to read because I was obsessively just reading everything I could find on cancer and what people are posting. Um, and so she also felt that was kind of unhealthy. <laughs> so that was something we, you know, worked on and, um, so yeah, it was it was a good experience. And 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 I was a little hesitant in my support group at first too, but now it's like I look forward to it every it's kind of like the highlight of my week just checking in on everyone and seeing how they're doing and hearing even though we all have different cancers, um it's interesting how much of our experiences are similar in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I you touched on this just now. I'm curious like 
over your lifetime, have you been a religious person? Have you been a spiritual person? Do you feel this changing? Do you feel- No, that's an important question. And I'm, I am not a religious person. Um, I, I mean, I definitely, I, I feel like I do meet maybe the criteria of spiritual. So this has been very tough because of my support group. There are many, many, many religious people and many people are saying they're praying for me and many people feel this is why I'm getting better, that the prayers are working. And so one thing that I've done is anytime someone tells me they're praying for me, I thank them and I mean it sincerely. Personally, I do not think a God gave me this cancer. I don't, I just think that's cruel. And I don't, I don't think that a God is going to cure me of this. That's just my belief. I just don't think that's how cancer works. And I think it also ties into what I was saying earlier to me, that would just, of all the people that die of this to imply like a higher power took them away. I, I just, it's, it's just not my belief system. I just, I don't think that's how this works, but I'm very appreciative of, I do see for a lot of people praying for me makes them feel like they're helping me. And so I appreciate that. And I always thank them. And I really do sincerely mean that, but I personally don't pray. Um, I just don't think that's how the world is set up. And again, I, I don't know, I could be wrong on that, but I I don't think a higher power gave me this. And I don't think a higher power is going to do that. And then I'm going to be cured. I just don't think it's how cancer works. Mm-hmm. I you don't have to answer this, but this is a hard question is something I've struggled with. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. But for a long time, I didn't believe in like an afterlife and I'm not a religious person either. Like, um, how do you envision something? Is there something unique to, you know, your own? Cause I feel like as a non-religious person, my belief came out of like who I am and what comforts me and how did I like get there anyway? No, no, it's, that's a really important question to ask. I, so I grew up in the South and I was never religious and I even really, I just had a lot of bad experiences with religion. I have, my sister is extremely, you know, Christian conservative. So I respect people that are, I have friends that are extremely religious, um, that I do admire and respect. I just, the way that religion has been used a lot of times to put women down, to put gays down, like, I just don't. And so the way that heaven has been described, (laughs) like, there's a lot of people, I don't want to spend eternity with them if I'm just being honest. So I like, I don't want to be, um, you know, I don't want to be on a cloud with Donald Trump for eternity. Like, I just don't see that happening. I don't, I don't want to be with Sarah Palin. (laughs) So the way that it's been described or like, I don't, I, I I don't know. It doesn't seem realistic. However, I don't know. I, I don't pretend to know things. I had a one, my mom's mom. I had a wonderful grandmother that died when I was very young. It'd be great if I could see her again, you know, it'd be wonderful. So maybe that will happen. And, but just the way that um, people have, disc- you know, like I have a lot of gay friends and I would like to see them in an afterlife. So if heaven doesn't allow that, then I don't want to be a part of that. So I, you know, and so 
again, I, I don't really know. I, I've never really kind of believed in a heaven or, or hell. I don't think there's Satan. I, I, I just, it, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> so, but again, like I said, it'd be wonderful if I saw my grandmother again, that would be amazing. So maybe that, maybe that will happen. You know? Maybe it's like, um, sometimes I think it's just this kind of collective energy force of like, I like to believe this may sound juvenile or childish, but that the Donald Trump's and the Sarah Palin's go to a separate area <laughs> of the energy force and they're out of my life. And I'm just energized by the, the people who you know, the people who did their best on this earth to be good. Absolutely. And I, I that sounds kind of religious. I yeah, don't know. No, I, that sounds really nice, actually. Yeah. I don't know. Are you forming your own religion right now, Erica? You, <laughs> let's get the outline down here. Mine, Cause... Kelly. Yeah, no. Well, Kelly knows my. I want to believe good people's rise somehow that may be juvenile but i hope so but i think not anyway but i think that um kelly knows this story of mine it, like sometimes spirituality comes in such an unexpected time or such an unexpected place and it's based on nothing right like nothing religious it was when i went into the infinity room at the broad museum and i was like do you, you've been there? Have have either of you been there to the road? Been there yet? I want to go. We should go. Let's do that for our next visit. Okay. And go to the Infinity Room. Yeah, yeah. it's really it's really amazing because you just go into this room by yourself, and there's all these like you're surrounded by all these mirrors and little lights, and I don't know. My big moment in it was like, wow, like I feel like everything's going to be okay, whether that means in an afterlife or present in the moment. But I had this like overwhelming sense of like, like a steep sigh. But I also remember looking in the mirror at my butt and going, I guess I'm bringing this butt along with me to the afterlife. <laughs> surrounded by so many mirrors. So I could see my big butt, my beautiful big butt. <laughs> anyway, no, it is nice to have. And that's why I do think that I I've had experiences like that too. So I, I do think I, you know, I'm not the deepest person, but I do think I do have some spiritual moments sometimes for sure. And I like your idea. I mean, we see so much ugliness, but there's still, we all know people who, despite all that are just amazing, kind, generous, wonderful people. And I agree with you. It'd be nice to think there's some sort of afterlife where that energy can go to. So, so I'm all for that. That sounds great. Or, I mean, my question is, do you remain your your person? You know, does your personhood stay intact or are we all energy and it's just all commingling in the afterlife and things are mixed together and you're not just like, hi, I'm Scott and I was on earth and now I'm Scott over here in heaven. Right. Um, I mean, that's what I don't understand because like then what if, if we're the same person, we go up there, some people had slaves, you know, 150, like we're going to chill with them with slaves. You know, it, it just doesn't like our society has changed so much. I don't, I don't see how we could be ourselves and you know, or especially like how women were treated for so long, like we're going to be with, so it, I, that never made any sense to me. So I guess the energy thing makes a little more sense to me than us being who we are for eternity with people that were raised in very different environments. I don't know. It just, 
doesn't make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> well, and Erica, when you mentioned the infinity room, that makes me think of that because I'm imagining these little mirrors all around and stepping into a room where you're surrounded by literally tons of little versions of yourself, just all looking back at you. And if Ooh. we looked around the world that way and saw the people around us as versions of us going through a lot of the same things we're going through with all of the insecurities and all of the you know bad days and good days and just trying to handle them. Um, I don't know. I think we we would all be a little bit kinder to each other. Um, and that room just sounds just, I haven't been there, but I'm just visually, I went to the free one that's outside that you can just peek in and it's like what? a free, free version of the room. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just imagining that experience of seeing yourself looking back at you. And I wondered, you know, if that, that just paints a beautiful picture. Yeah, it does. I, and I hadn't thought about it in terms of that. It, Yeah, like, what does it mean that my image or image in that room is being reflected and reflected? What I noticed was that your reflection gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. till you look like you're just one of those lights in the mirror. So I think that's where I got this idea of like, you know, this energy or whatever that we become this beautiful light, whatever that means. Maybe yeah. hopefully the Beatles will be there. <laughs> yes. It, I reminds, just, it reminds me of that picture that we just got from that telescope that they launched into space that took a picture oh. of just like however many million light years in the distance, there's this vibrant community of all of these planets and galaxies of um, and it's just like all of those little pictures of yourself around the room. Like we're surrounded by all of these solar systems that we, we don't even... Yes, yeah. definitely. But no, Scott, I think you brought up a good point. And I, I even try to remember that too, because, um, yeah, I'm, I've always been a very political person and, and, um, you know, so you get disappointed and angry about things and you get excited about things that have happened this week politically, but, um, but I, I think you just brought up a good point that we just need to try to remember that, like you said, we're all going through the same trials and tribulations and it's easy to think, I think just like you're saying, if we had more empathy for people that that um, we, things would be a lot better and trying to remember that, that we don't know what a person's going through and it's probably, they're probably not that different from us even when it seems like people are very different. And it's hard. I hear people say like, like, oh, I'm not mad at, you know, Trump, for example, I'm praying for him or, you know, and seeing him as a wounded animal or, you know, seeing him as a, a child who was brought up by a very tough parent. Right. Who hurt him. And then, you know, some people can use that and be very good and try to make good in the world. Some people can be hurt and just hurt the next group that they can right. because they were um, because they feel bad. I don't know. It's yeah. It's interesting. It's hard to be empathetic to some people. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. I, 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 I am not that good of a person. I have absolutely no empathy for Donald Trump. Uh, and, but, but I'm impressed to hear someone could, and you're right. It's uh, his father apparently was very cruel. Um, and maybe that's where his cruelty comes from. Yeah. But yeah, at a certain yeah. point, you have to take responsibility for yourself and not become a monster. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And many, many people, I mean, that was one thing I grew up around a lot of violence. I have never assaulted anyone. And I'm very proud of that. And um, I, yeah, I would never use violent. I don't raise my voice. Um, I just, I broke 
I broke that, uh, you know, um, cycle. Yeah, yeah, that cycle, I broke it. And I'm so very proud of that. If you're feeling a lot of stress, what is your release? How do you, you know, because that's some people that they'll break a dish or, you know, they're taking it out yeah. in a negative way. How do you release stress? I, you know, my issue is it's very rare that I do get very angry. My problem is if I get there, I can't get over it fast. So I just, I, I feel like I've just learned, um, to, uh, try to be chill. And I mean, it doesn't always happen, but you know, that's a good question. I think I've just learned for, for the most part to deal with stress. Sometimes I, my, I, for the most part, I handle stress pretty well. Um, sometimes one of my flaws is, um, I can self-sabotage and just avoid if I know something's going to be stressful, sometimes I do avoid it, which is never a good strategy, but I think it's because I don't want to get angry or, you know, um, so that's something I've been trying to work on to, um, like after our meeting today, uh, I have some classes that are starting next week. Like I got to get these classes set up and I've just been, it, it is stressful. So I've been kind of putting it off, but I'm going to do it as soon as this is over, uh, you know, to, to do that. So, um, uh, but I do like, I, you know, I love comedy, so I love movies. I love to eat out. It's another flaw of mine. So I like to do those types of things. I like to go for a walk to relieve stress. So I have a, a, some good positive coping strategies. Yeah. It was Kelly? funny that you, that you okay. said flaw for eating out. I was like, I don't think many people would call <laughs> eating out a flaw. <laughs> That's enjoying oh. food. I think is great. Yes. Um, Kelly's really funny. I was a groupie kind of, right? <laughs> like that's really how we became friends because I would go see you at open mics and stuff. When I met you, I'd be like, oh, that woman Kelly Spillman's on that mic. And then we 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 met like official, we really got to know each other, Christine Blackburn, Storyworthy. Yes. Mike. Yeah, what you told me about, you were always so helpful at telling me about like the cool open mics to do. And you're right, we, I completely forgot that. Uh, they had that Saturday afternoon one, which was great. Yeah, yeah. She told me about, which was awesome. I wouldn't have even known about it. Maybe you guys oh. can both speak to this, but how does storytelling as a craft make you, we talked earlier about appreciating the moment, you know, and really feeling a certain moment and paying attention to it. And to me, if you're writing a story, it's you paying attention to a moment or to a feeling and describing it in detail and then recreating it for an audience and does that act make you appreciate life more or how does, how does that act? How does it make you feel? Yeah, I, I, that's one thing I storytelling is just, I'm just so glad I met Erica because she really introduced me to it. We had another friend, Elizabeth, and then uh, Erica told us about the moth, which if you can ever do that, it's just a magical experience to be in front of like two to 300 people and tell a story. But you, you do, it is amazing. Like you were saying earlier, Scott, you through storytelling, you know, the audience members come up and you, you kind of learn that even though the person may be like I tell a story about working at Subway when we're getting robbed and not everyone has worked at a Subway and got robbed, but a lot of people worked at fast food restaurants or worked a job or something dangerous, or they were left in charge when they were really young and the, had an incompetent manager. And so you, you end up just seeing that a lot, again, that we, we share a lot of 
experiences or certain themes in your life. And so, um, yeah, it's just, I, it, to me, it's just a magical thing to be on stage and to be able to share something and to have the audience respond. Um, I, I, there's just no other feeling like it in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you're touching, you, you said it like the universality of life and how you can pick a moment from your life, whether it's comedic or funny, sad, poignant, whatever mix of everything and create something that's going to, you know, give someone else a, an experience is really fun. You know, it's uh, for me, I think I wrote a lot about my mental health over the years and it was really cathartic and it was really um, helpful to understand that it wasn't my fault, that it wasn't something, you know, that I caused it. It helped, it helped me process a lot. Storytelling helps me process things. And also because I didn't want to, I think like in, you've been talking about your diagnosis and I heard you at Revealed, um, tell a story and then your story today. And that, it's so it's it's so hopeful you give people this like burst of hope and I didn't know I introduced you to the moth but then that's because and that's also how you met your boyfriend it is so. you introduced me to my boyfriend as well yeah so Erica's a very important person in my life and I wanted to say this about Erica and I've I've told you this before but I and this is why I've started talking about my cancer story, maybe I'm being kind of like a martyr, but I, I did not know much about cancer before this happened to me. And I, I just feel like that might be the same for other people. And so that's why I want to talk about this. And I do think Erica is doing so much by talking openly about having bipolar disorder. I think a lot of people, there's a lot of confusion about what bipolar disorder is. And I feel like Erica has really humanized that and I, I I think it's just so important that she talks about this openly all over LA, and I I really think it makes a difference in the world and makes people more empathetic for people that have bipolar and even educating them on what really bipolar disorder is because I just think there's so much confusion around what it really is. So I just I again I think that's what's so important about the storytelling community. And I, I'm so glad you do that, Erica, because it is very vulnerable. And you tell things that, you know, um, you know, are so personal and so vulnerable. And I, I you know, that you may not want to share, but I just think it's so important that you do. Oh, thanks, Kelly. I still, I remember like all your stories. I love the one about where you, the boy you had the crush on and <laughs> birthday card too, right? And then your friends. Yeah. Yeah, my friend, uh, I had a crush on someone. He was such a talented um, musician. And um, my best friend, Melanie, got him to write a handmade card for me. And then she threw me a surprise 15th birthday party. And the card disappeared at the party from my crush. And my friend, Delinda, stole it. And then she gave it back to me on my birthday at school. But I still dislike her to this day because she stole my, my card from Roger. <laughs> yes, who knows? I know. Um, I know. Well, 
it's but in telling I think the story I started you losing my train of thought when we were talking before but the thing about storytelling too it's like a photo album almost you get to go through the catalog of your memories and then paint the picture of them with words and that's something that really when I had my first um, manic episode I got evicted from my apartment and all of my all of my photos and I was like a photo person got thrown out by the eviction people is one of the it was very challenging and so and all of my journals like for like from like the time I was a teenager all the way through college into my late into my like till I was like 27 years old gone no I know it really was hard but that's one of the beautiful things about storytelling is that I can like I go back into my memory and I find it and then I write it and then I, I process it and then I try to paint it so that like you were saying so that the audience can just you know have the experience so yeah storytelling's rad it is I agree have your stories changed over like over your lives, you, the person you were when you started processing things versus the person you became after doing it for years. For what? For me or Kelly? Kelly, you, you went at the first. You know, that's a good question. I. It's interesting, and almost all my stories have revolved around jobs I had, and so. Um, and my boyfriend brings this up. He thinks I like to play the clown in the stories. And he thinks that's why people like my stories. Cause I, and I don't know why my brain goes to these stories where like ridiculous things happened, but it's just kind of, I guess what my brain latches onto. Um, but that's where this has been a change too, where, you know, I always kind of wanted to tell funny stories and there's a little bit that, you know, in the story that you both heard at Erica's, there was some humor, but for the most part, it really was just about this cancer journey. So that's been kind of a nice shift for me to realize I don't always have to be the funny storyteller. And maybe I can uh, look for some of these more poignant stories that don't need where I don't need to be the clown in the story, because I think I was doing that in a lot of the original ones. Yeah, I think that you're hilarious though so <laughs> not everybody can be the clown so i guess no, if you have right. that ability it's good to incorporate it sometimes at yeah. least yeah yeah i think for me i now now i'm trying to like pull out my more just like generally funny side or like because i I feel like in my stories i have a mix of humor and tragedy and triumph but I've been exploring, like I always like exploring just smaller stories that are funny because that's really out of my comfort area, even though I'm like, I consider myself, I'm like a funny person in life. Usually it's by accident and then people are laughing and I'm like, oh, that was <laughs> funny. That's kind of what happens to me on stage at Revealed too. Yes. Yeah. No, but I've always seen you. You've always been very funny, Erica. Oh. Thanks. Thanks. Oh, man. This is just, 
it, it this brings I'm so glad Scott's the one who came up with doing this together. I was going to ask you all how you came up with it. I think it's I'm so glad you're doing it. It's such an important topic. Um, I am a psychology professor and I mean, students, it's interesting, like psychological disorders are usually their favorite chapter, but we talk a lot about, you know, I, I kept hoping like, especially when Biden got elected that more money will be given to mental health that will. And I think even also with the pandemic, I think a lot of Americans experienced depression and anxiety for the first time. I mean, like severe depression, and severe anxiety. So I'm optimistic that we will hopefully start taking mental health more seriously in this country and have more resources available. But I just think it's so important you two are doing this. It's an, it's a very important topic and I don't think we can talk about it enough in all honesty. Well, I looked up Biden's every committee and every like, every, like, you know, they have like um, different levels. Like there's like people who are fighting for clean water and there's people right. who are on there. are There is money because of Biden, I think, because it's so close to home for committees working on cancer research. Yeah. I hope so. amazing. But I was really shocked to see there wasn't anything on like a hundred things that because my friend was I was helping my friend with an application there for the in the administration. And there wasn't a single thing about mental health, not to be a downer, but I oh, it's horrible. Yeah, that's that's really dis. I mean, when it and it's like a trillion dollar bill, that's horrible that there's nothing for mental health. That's right. very disappointing. We're here to figure it out on our own, I guess. Yes, I know that it's, it's, uh, I, again, maybe we will see more just because so many Americans experienced depression, anxiety, maybe, you know, to a greater extent than they ever had before. But uh, yeah, that is a bummer. I'm, I'm. But I think you make make a really good point. Like now that people have walked in those shoes, they may be more likely to advocate or vote for things that are going to help mental health. And now that people can see, like I saw my therapist over Zoom, I didn't have to go to an office to see her. And I also just wonder if that might take some of the stigma where people don't have to sit in a waiting office for a therapist, like maybe more people will start getting therapy too, because you, you know, you don't have to sit in that office or you can do it over zoom. And I don't know, it'll be interesting to see maybe more people will start taking therapy seriously or try it out for the first time, like I did. And I definitely had a good experience doing it. It's interesting that, and I didn't know you were a psychology professor until now. What it's, it's interesting that it took you so long to try (laughs) therapy. I I know. Uh, people are really shocked because you know, like my friends that know, I know, I just, um, you know, I, 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 not to imply like, oh, I didn't have any mental health issues. I just, I guess I never had any to an extent that, that I thought I needed to see a therapist, but I, but that's a regret. Like I, I think anyone to to have an outside person listen to what's going on in your life and offer some insight like i think all of us can benefit from that so um yeah it's a shame it took me getting stage 4 cancer to realize the importance of talking to someone or in psychology and studying psychology you were more interested in other areas or what were you more interested in yeah i've I, and i've been a counselor myself and i always enjoyed it um and then i i love teaching like psychology is so fun to teach um 
because if, I mean, if you don't find human behavior interesting, I, I, I can't help you. So, you know, it's, to me, it's always been a, a really fun thing to teach. Um, and, and yeah, not I, myself, I've, uh, worked as a counselor, um, with, um, uh, uh, with prisoners, with substance abuse addicts, HIV positive people, foster youth. So, um, I had a good experience myself working as a counselor, but yeah, I just, I know. And friends made fun of me. How are you a psych professor that never went to a therapist? But yeah, I never did. I'm, I'm curious. You're the rock for that. <laughs> You're the rock. Yeah. I assume that we might have listeners who are sometimes looking for some universal, I don't want to say tips. Well, you know, just, and we rarely have someone with a counseling background on. I'm just wondering, are there certain strategies that you think work for not for everyone, but that tend to be the most useful recommendations that you would make to a patient that you were seeing um, that, you know, someone listening might say, oh, I should, maybe I'll try that out or I'll, you know, uh, might be helpful to them. Yeah. Um, well, you know, this may sound, but to me, this relates to storytelling. Um, I definitely see the benefit uh, and I'm still not always the best at this, but of writing things down, writing down what you're feeling, what you're going through. And even if you feel like you have nothing to, to say, I mean, even if it's just, um, uh, but I definitely see a benefit. Like I was never one to journal. I, it's interesting to hear Erica did that growing up. And I have a lot of friends that always did that, but I, I definitely think writing can be very cathartic in getting out emotions and things that we're dealing with. And, and even just noticing things that come up because I, I think sometimes we just stay so busy and I think busyness is a way of avoiding things that maybe we don't want to deal with. So I definitely think that's something good. And, um, I, I, it sounds corny, but I just think having a sense of humor, I mean, I've, I have written so many jokes about having cancer <laughs> and I think it helps me deal with this. So I just think trying to find the humor in life and our situations can also just be very cathartic in my opinion. And I think that's something I've always tried to do. And that's how I deal with stress too, is trying to find the humor in it, which isn't always easy to do, but, but I think, I, I think you, you usually can find some humor in, in most situations. Love that. That's... I don't know. I don't know if yeah, you feel yeah. okay. Well, and if anyone wants to hear some of your humor, this was a serious story we shared today, but where can they find you to yeah, hear? Yeah, so I do you? on YouTube. Some of them are old, please forgive me, but I do have I have lots of my stories from the moth, and then I have my stand-up on YouTube. So just my name, Kelly Spillman. I've got lots of clips up there. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Kelly Spillman, and I um I sometimes on uh, those sites will post videos too. Uh, but yeah, I just booked in Atlanta in December, um, a big gig. So my goal is to tell only cancer jokes for the whole set and to win the audience over, which, um, you know, so I've been working on that here in LA and I've, I've, it's been going well because it's a dark topic and at first they feel really bad when they hear you have stage four cancer. So it's a big thing to try to win them back, not 
to have them feel sorry for you and to actually get them laughing. So it's kind of a good goal for myself to have during this. Um, so I'm excited about that. But yeah, I have lots of uh, videos, so please watch them. And uh, I don't have any cancer ones up yet, but I will soon. I will soon. I'm doing a story next month that's getting, um, and the theme is, I wouldn't wish this on anyone and I would not wish stage four cancer, even on Trump. Uh, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, uh, but it has to be funny. So I'm kind of excited about doing a story on cancer where I have to be funny for seven minutes. Uh, so it's a good challenge for next month. So I'll get a copy of that and I'll post that on YouTube as well next month. Amazing. Well, I'm just so happy that you came on to talk to yes. us, share your story with all the listeners. And yeah, I really appreciate you all giving me the time to uh, talk about this. I really appreciate it. Well, it was really great to hear from you. And yes. um, I, as we close out the episode, um, Kelly Spillman, thank you so much for joining us on Telling Mental Health. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I'm just going to say... I love you as a friend <laughs> and as an artist. Thank you. I love you as a friend and an artist as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. To share your story, you can email the show at tellingmentalhealth.com. Since I know you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so you don't miss the next one.